Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today's Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Clone A Willy, the DIY molding kit that allows you to make an exact replica of your penis or any penis into a high quality vibrating sex toy, all in the comfort of your own home. It's the most personalized sex toy on the planet. And it's all DIY. Dildo it yourself. You can also make a replica of your favorite vulva with the Clone A Pussy kits. That's right, Clone A Willy is for all genders. Each mold is 100% body safe materials, 100% platinum pure silicon, and available in nine colors, including glow in the dark. They are manufactured and shipped right here in the United States, out of Portland, Oregon, and have been since the company was first formed in 1996. We love and support small businesses, especially ones that promote sexual liberation. Use promo code SHUTUPEVAN for 20% off at cloneawilly.com or find Clonawilly at your local sex toy shop. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut Shut up. up. Is it okay if I just ask? Shut Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just? Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm joined once again by my friend and co-host, Sean Ross. Sean, how's it going? Loaded question. I'm just getting over some food poisoning, but uh, <laughs> uh, which doesn't happen to me ever. It's only happened like twice in the past. But I, I'm feeling I'm feeling better. I dragged myself out to Barbie last night, and uh, I think it cured me. So you chose Barbie over Oppenheimer. Yes. <laughs> The thing is, it's not even the battle between Oppenheimer and Barbie. It's like, I have no time to watch a Christopher Nolan movie. It takes a lot of time to watch a Christopher Nolan movie, so I understand. And I didn't have the stomach for a Christopher Nolan movie. For how much hype Oppenheimer has gotten, which I think is largely sort of because it is perceived as like this, you know, battle royale between it and Barbie, I know very little about 
Oppenheimer. Like, I didn't even realize <laughs> that Florence Pugh was in Oppenheimer. I didn't know she was in it. Until she started popping up, yeah, on the red carpet. And then I was like, oh, is she there in support of, I don't know, Downey Jr. or Matt Damon or, or Emily Blunt? And then I was like, oh, she's in the film. And then I was like, hmm, I should Wikipedia and find out who all is in this movie. And I was like, holy shit, this cast <laughs> is stacked. Um, I don't know. I have this, like inkling to see it. I don't love a three hour runtime either. I don't think most people do, but I am very curious about Oppenheimer because as much as I know about it is as little as I know about it. Well, yeah, I, I just don't care about it. I felt like I heard plenty of it from the theater next to us during Barbie. <laughs> I swear to God, I heard half I've the movie. heard this has been happening. How are you? I'm doing well. I uh, just attended the wedding last night of my sister-in-law. Um, Billy's sister got married out here. Billy's dad got up and like made this speech that sort of like brought the house down. And I don't know, just seeing all the love in the room for them. And then I will say, Rachel, Billy's sister, pulled what I have to say is a pretty epic move. She told everyone where, you know, I think we'd finished the speeches and this was like right before the main course. And she told everyone to check under their seats. <gasps> like Oprah. And we had handwritten letters. Every single guest got one. It was a handwritten wow. letter from the bride and groom saying how much they love you and why you mean a lot to them. And, and the reason behind that is Rachel, and this was expressed throughout many of the speeches, Rachel's love language is words of affirmation. So she chose to spread her love language onto others and give us her words of affirmation. And I gotta tell you, it was like so affecting because at first I was like, oh, there's this, you know, a standardized note that they typed uh -huh. up. But no, handwritten and like very, very detailed about, I mean, I read mine, I read Billy's, I read several others. They were very much catered to the individual. And I was so impressed. Oh my God. I'd be slipping a couple more bills into the gift. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm like, geez. <laughs> so yeah, that was definitely a highlight. And I uh, definitely something I took away as far as like, should I do this? Is this... Do I need to do this? Well, did that inspire you to get moving on this wedding planning that seems to never be? <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, we have made strides, which by the way, we were just uh, right before we began recording this, we just were going over the guest list. And I am glad to say, Sean, you have advanced on <laughs> to the next round. Well, we had to we had to make some cuts because I keep adding, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, we have to add Sarah Jessica now that she's following me on Instagram. You know what I mean? Like, in my mind, I'm like yeah. making room for some heavy hitters that are not even <laughs> going to open the envelope. I'm going to I'm going to be out there like as an alternate. No, no, no. You are you are getting it no matter what. And thank you to those of you who have continued to ask for an update about this. We have chosen a wedding date. I'm not going to say it in the event that like something happens, but we will be getting married, knock on wood, sometime in the first half of 2024. We wow. have found a location. We have locked the location, but like that just means that like they have taken that date off the board, but like we still have like, you know, we have to do our second tour of it and you know, Nothing is certain, but like for the first time, like this past weekend, when people were asking about our wedding, we were able to say like, here's the date and here's the location with like some gumption say, yeah, our wedding is in, you know, spring 2024. Okay, spring. So spring. I don't need my winter boots. 
It's not going to be like the bomb cyclone episode of And Just Like That. We had considered a February date at one point, and I think there was something about uh, Carrie in that Montclair, Pierre Paolo uh, puffer that I was like, I just don't think there would be room in the coat room if everyone chose to wear something of that of that nature. So that was what ultimately pushed us back. I mean, especially if she's invited. What if that was like, SJ, please, please, please attend. And would you mind uh, wearing that iconic bomb cyclone? Or or would you mind if I wear it while walking up the aisle? I like that even better. (laughs) So so anyway, so that's the update on the wedding. But yeah, I feel good to like be making forward motion. And I don't know, in my mind, I'm like, because this would give us you know, seven, eight, nine months uh, trying to keep some mystery about like flat out saying it. But um, in my mind, I'm like, can one do that? But then it's like, I think things, and maybe this is just my glass three quarter full attitude, but like, I think that, um, wait, it can't be three quarter full. It's that's ruins the whole analogy, right? It's like uh, the whole point is that it's perspective based, but it's actually like, yeah. Okay. Is it a quarter empty or three quarters full? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tend to have a good attitude about these things and sort of thinking everything will work out as it should. I don't know if that's the proper perspective to have at something of this scale. What, what are you worried that like you're going to order flowers and they're going to be like, we can't do that for that that soon or something? Like, what's no, the problem? There's a part of me that's like, you want to have more than a year. No. Okay, yeah, then... I hate that. Okay, we're full steam ahead. Yeah. Also, part of me is like, if I needed to plan a wedding in a month, like... I could do it. Like it's ultimately it. like like you're uh, yeah. So I'm feeling good about it. In my mind, something about nine months feels like oh, it's you know it's gonna co- it's gonna be here in no time. But then I'm also like, well, that's kind of the point. You're having an event. You you want it to play out. So I think I think we've got pl- plenty of runway now. That's actually I do have a good transition here for once because nine months of runway. Barbie, the film that we're here to talk about today, it was given years of runway. I mean, I believe the film was first announced, I want to say 2017, somewhere around them. I don't want to say development hell. I think it was just a long gestating period of development before it landed with the final product that we got here now. Now, we're here to talk about Barbie, uh, but we're here to talk about both the film and the cultural moment happening around the film, Mm -hmm. which are in some senses one and the same, but also very separate. And I'm nervous to talk about this film today. Um, Not because I have like anything terribly negative to say, more because there's so much to address. And obviously we're going to do our best to be succinct here. But like there's, again, there's the film and then there's the phenomenon of the film. And there's ways in which I think the phenomenon of the film interrupts. I should only speak on my own behalf, but my ability to speak about the film because it's so much informed by not just the critics, but like there's this like hyper fixation on Barbie again, both as a film, but like where it sits in the pantheon of films. And then also like in sort of like the post COVID cinema landscape. And then also the sort of like Greta Gerwig as this really prominent female director who's now breaking box office records. There's just so many angles with which to talk about it. Also, it's a very polarizing film, and I'm not just talking about the conservative backlash that's largely been fanned by quote tweets calling out the ridiculousness. No, I'm talking more about the ways in which Twitter will largely have you believe that this is 
the best piece of cinema ever crafted, better than The Godfather, better than Sinister Kane. Maybe it is. Um, but when you go over to like the critic side of things, I think this uh, has received more middling responses from critics. Yeah. My favorite review I've read, unsurprisingly, came from Richard Lawson at Vanity Fair, who said, quote, there is plenty in Barbie to be delighted by, even moved by. I have no doubt that the film will be a massive hit, cheered for turning a cynical IP project into a loopy treatise on being. But the movie could maybe have been stickier, more probing, and indelible if it had reined in some of its erratic energy and really figured out what it wanted to say. And I think that says it really <laughs> concisely. He is a professional critic for a reason. Um, I also, before we get into it, I do want to congratulate Greta Gerwig. This film opened to a record-setting 155 million opening weekend. It is the biggest debut of the year. Um, and more than that, she's helped to create, as I mentioned, a, a real cultural moment that transcends just the art of movie making. That is not easy to do. I cannot think of a time where the monoculture has become this mono and hey, maybe it's driving you fucking crazy, but one cannot deny the power of Barbie. And that is a power that is wielded by Greta Gerwig. But Sean, let's go top level here. Barbie, what'd you think? Look, I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> it was... <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up. Do I think that it was the best movie I've ever seen? No, but I think for what it was... Taking an IP, taking not just an IP, but the IP of Barbie, which is, you know, classically geared to young children, young girls especially, um, and is kind of a controversial figure in in the way that like Barbie herself and as a product, a commercial product, is very polarizing. I think it very cleverly took that concept and turned it into a movie worth watching, which I think you couldn't say about a lot of IP uh, um, adaptations. And so for that, I think that, that the film needs to be applauded. Uh, with regards to sort of like not knowing what it wanted to say, I actually disagree with that. I, actually, I think that it knew exactly what it wanted to say. And I think my problem with the movie was that it told us what it wanted to say too much and too many times. Um Granted, you know, it's nice to see a movie saying that and a movie that's opening to such huge numbers and reaching such huge audiences, uh, you know, like that is, that's noteworthy. You know, some of it was like a little more obvious than I hoped it would be. What is the standout performance for you in this film? I mean, I think the internet would largely have you believe it is Ryan Gosling's performance as the main Ken amongst a sea of Kens. Do you agree with the internet? You know what? I was very impressed by Ryan Gosling. I will say that. Uh, I, I Going into it, I didn't think that he was going to be the standout for me, um, but he really impressed me. I thought he did a lot more with the role than, you know, somebody else may have. Um, I think that, and like, I know it's obvious, but I don't know. I think Margot Robbie needs to be applauded for this performance. I think it was like really incredible. And, you know, some of the, are we spoiling? I think we're spoiling. I was surprised to hear that some, like, I saw that NPR is doing two separate Barbie, like, conversations, yeah. a, a no spoiler and then a spoiler. What is the big spoiler? Just basically the end, like the ending? Is that the spoiler? I, I guess I guess it is. Um, the, the thing is, speaking of spoilers, I think one of the problems I had watching this movie was that 
sitting in the theater, I had seen so much of the movie already, right, through the trailers. And there's some of these great moments, like that moment where Barbie says, do you guys ever think about dying? Had I not seen that, and I understand why that's in a trailer, it's, it's a big laugh line. Had I not seen that, I think I would have like laughed out loud. But I had seen it so many times that it just didn't hit while watching the movie. And that's like more commentary on like maybe not watching trailers. But I, I feel like some of the power of those lines and those moments, it, it loses the power. Because when you're in the theater, it's just like, oh, well, I can see this coming from a mile away. I see they're in the dance sequence. I mean, she's going to say this. It's like that's the first moment where sort of the veneer cracks and she starts to have this existential crisis. It's a big moment. It's a big line. And I felt like it was diluted a little bit because of its presence in pop culture. To your point, I think some of those trailers were just unavoidable. One of the most shocking moments for me, because I went to an early screening that was, you know, the audience was hype, to say the least. They played Ken's musical number, I'm Just Ken, because that that number is featured in a trailer for the film, the entirety of the number. Oh. And they played that trailer before we watched the film. So we watched all of Ryan Gosling sing this very important 11 o'clock number for his character minutes before watching the film. And to your point, yes, I mean, there's the, have you guys ever thought about dying moment? But there were just so many moments throughout the film both lines in the film and also just visual cues. There was a fatigue I felt not just from the buildup to this movie and the potential overhype of this movie, but also in feeling like, yeah, there were very few uh, stones that I felt were unturned by the time I saw it. And it really did hinder my viewing experience, which leads me to sort of my question, because I feel like there's a spectrum of how pieces of art are released. On the one end, I feel like you have like Beyonce's self-titled album from 2013, where it's surprise dropped with no hype whatsoever. And it was like, here is the thing for everybody right now, go. And then on the other end of that spectrum is this film Barbie, where we had months and months. And this is everything from you've got multiple trailers of the film, you have the cast going on a press tour, the size and scope of which I have never seen before. And because this is such a large ensemble cast, they were able to like web out to so many different places in so many different configurations. I mean like, you know, you got Margot and, and Ryan playing with the puppies for BuzzFeed. You have Kate McKinnon and Issa Rae and America Ferreira doing a, a, you know, a Cosmo charades. You've got, you know, your red carpets. Then you have all these brand tie-ins, which were just the amount of, you know, brands that came in here and said, yeah, we'll make our Corvette Barbie themed. For your taste level, if we're saying that, you know, the continuum is Beyonce self-titled to Greta Gerwig's Barbie, where do you prefer something to live? And I realize that like, it's a difficult question to say because every piece of art is different. These are different mediums, right? So you can't surprise drop a movie. Nobody's going to go see it. So I understand the necessity commercially. But may I interrupt just to say, it's like you can't surprise drop an album either. Like that did not exist. You can if you have the, if you have the name behind it. But to that point then, then yes, you could surprise drop a movie <laughs> like Barbie. I guess you could, but you're not going to get the opening weekend numbers you're looking for. Right. 
Look, I would rather know less. I've actually started moving away from watching trailers of movies that I want to see because I find that they are giving so much away. And I like to be surprised. I like to know as little as possible about a movie going into it. Unfortunately, that just like wasn't going to be the case for for me with Barbie. Um, and, I, you know, on the other side of it, going into the theater, there's like they're blasting Aqua's Barbie girl. Everybody's lined up to take a picture in the Barbie box. You know, there's a palpable energy in the air because of the hype that had been whipped up. And like, thank God that the film lives up to the hype in this case, because in so many cases it doesn't. And so there is like an excitement about that. And it is really fun to go into a theater full of people to watch a film that like, Although it's a blockbuster and it's based on, you know, Barbie, it's based on a toy, um, it's got Greta Gerwig behind it. You know that it's going to be a, a little bit more arty than maybe a Marvel movie. And yet the fervor is in the audience and you can feel the energy. That's really fun. So it's like, you know, I see the appeal of both. Personally, I just wish I knew less. And it's interesting because the audience that I went into the theater with were so amped up, as I said. But I was surprised that like during the film itself, they weren't as loud and vocal as I would have expected from like the, you know, walking into the theater, seeing everybody dressed in pink, the amount of people taking selfies. It was like, I felt like I was at an influencer activation <laughs> and not just a screening of a movie. And again, credit to these people. Like, honestly, it's like you can roll your eyes at all of this, but it's genius. They did this really effective marketing tool which was to make you feel like you the audience wanted to be a part of this thing was this an audience that i found to be as engaged as say the audience at bo is afraid which i thought was like one of the most vocal audiences i've ever been at the theater with again i don't not saying that was like a better viewing experience necessarily i mean they were pretty annoying um, at several points throughout the film, but I was just surprised that I didn't think the audience was as wrapped up in the film as they were on Barbie, the moment, the experience. And I'm not sure that's a demerit to the film at all, but I did think it was notable. I'll say that my audience was. Your audience was. Oh, right? yes. There was cheers after lines. There was wow. like, like vocal explanations of some kind. Like there was big laughs. Yeah. I would say that pe people were pretty invested throughout the film. Interesting. So the other thing I think is interesting here and is a, a difficult needle to thread within all of this is the involvement of Mattel. Yes. Because Mattel owns Barbie. Uh, Mattel financed this film and it's understood that this is, go this is part of a larger effort that Mattel is going to be making to sort of transition into movie making as a new revenue stream for them because I would imagine I don't have statistics pulled up about Barbie sales but I imagine they're going to go I, I imagine in addition to this film making a fuck ton of money I feel like the merchandising opportunities uh both for pre-existing Barbie but like even like new Barbies that can come out like there's a lot of opportunities to make a lot of money here I think it's pretty clear that Greta Gerwig understood the parameters she was working in and wanted to, you know, commentate on people's complex relationships with Barbie. I mean, the most obvious moment is when Barbie enters the real world. She goes in search of the young girl who she thinks is responsible for her malfunctioning in Barbie, Barbie world, Barbie land. 
the world or land? Land. And when she seeks her out, the young girl's name is Sophia. Yeah. And Sophia and her friends are sitting there and they sort of <laughs> go on a litany around like why Barbie is totally passe and totally antiquated. And this makes Barbie cry because in Barbie... Barbie's understanding of Barbie is that Barbie is the thing that, like, the glue that that, that holds the real world together, uh, and she's in for a, a rude awakening. At the end of the film, which, you know, again, I've seen a lot of tweets being like, I can't believe they got away with this, which is that Barbie has chosen to live in the real world and uh, decides to go and visit a gynecologist. And that is the button to the film, which got a huge laugh in the theaters and is really funny because as many people know, uh, Barbie dolls famously do not have genitalia. Do you think that the film and Greta Gerwig were successful in that effort to sort of strike that balance between being a product of the thing while also attempting to poke fun at the thing that you are in fact a part of yeah i do and i think that like hats off to mattel because this was genius marketing for them yes. uh, if their goal was to make money not just from a film but to sort of like reinvigorate you know a product that they have or a product line that they have being barbie um they've done it like i mean i don't know how much because this film isn't geared towards children and i can't imagine a lot of people are bringing their kids to see this movie not that it's really like age inappropriate but there, there's moments and uh but you know, but i do think it's it's appealing to the nostalgia of people sort of like our age who did play with barbies who may be sort of like in that like collector age where they might want to buy a Marco Robbie Barbie or they might want to like dip into something, right? Um, and so I think that a lot of other companies who hold an IP like this may not have been willing to sign off on some of the jokes that are in there, either about Mattel or about Barbie uh, as, a, as a person, right? Or as, as a character. And they did. And like, I respect that because it makes it a better movie. Like it works uh, because it, it doesn't feel like propaganda, which is probably the best kind of propaganda. Totally. What's interesting and ties into to what we're talking about is in Time Magazine's review, which I actually think their review was the first I read, and I think in addition to Richard Lawson's for Vanity Fair was the best. Their review says, quote, The question we're supposed to ask as our jaws hang open is how did the Mattel poobas let these jokes through? But those real-life execs, counting their Dublins in advance, know that showing what good sports they are will help rather than hinder them. They're on Team Barbie, after all and they already have a long list of toy and movie tie-ins on the drawing board. Meanwhile, we're left with Barbie the Movie, a mosaic of many shiny bits of cleverness with not that much to say. Which again, goes back to this sort of overarching narrative I've seen amongst the reviews and sort of saying that the film is saying a lot of things, not all of them successful. I would argue I would rather a film say 10 things and get six of them right in comparison to many films that I feel like have zero things to say. So if... The demerit to Barbie is that it's sort of, there's too much going on. I, I think that's admirable. I mean, I think that that is something that gives a lot of people different things to chew on within it. But I do think what the Time interview is interesting in pointing out, they're basically commenting on your response, which is like you, Sean, just now saying like, wow, like how incredible is that that they were good enough sports to allow this to go through? And what the Time interview is pointing out is sort of like, well, they know that, right? Like they're perhaps one step ahead of people like you. And I'm not and I'm not pointing you as like 
I, I don't think this way, you think this way, Sean, but no, but just to say that like, there are people out there that are like, wow, it's really cool that they allowed this to go in. But ultimately like, did they really look like that bad? Like the jokes that they were making, I think were pretty lighthearted. And yeah, I think I too had those moments where I was like, oh, wow, cool of them that they let this in. But then I'm also like, are we just like chumps and thinking that like this was somehow um, like that? Because I did see some tweets being like, wow, Greta Gerwig was able to sneak in this joke. And nobody sneaks anything into a, a movie with this budget. No, but the thing is, it's like yes and yes, that both things are true. Because like a lot, I, I think a lot of companies and I think a lot of like franchises wouldn't let some of these things be said. And so, yes, it's savvy of them to do that because they recognize that's what people want. We want a criticism of Mattel. We want a criticism of Barbie. We don't want something that's like sort of, um, I don't know, pinkwashed, whatever. <laughs> pinkwashed is actually, but like something that is just very like sanitized. That's the genius in, in them sort of like approving the Noah Baumbach, Greta Gerwig vision for Bar Barbie. The movie that I kept thinking of throughout this film was the Brady Bunch movies, which I think are some of the gold standard when it comes to lovingly critiquing the thing that they're sending up. And I do, although, again, really enjoyed this movie, I would be curious what this movie would have looked like had Mattel not been involved in the creation of it, had they been able to go jab a little bit more pointedly. But but yeah, I do think I, I appreciated the fact that the film the filmmakers and Mattel were willing to even like bring to the table the fact that like this is a company that has had many a misstep and that they were willing to point out that and particularly like the inclusion of Midge, for instance, which was famously Barbie's <laughs> pregnant friend, uh, perpetually pregnant friend, like her inclusion in the film and the and the joke of, of her sort of <laughs> always just being in the background and stuck in the same place. I appreciated moments like that. I do feel like overall, this to me felt a little bit more like Barbie 2 than it did the original, just because the whole yeah. premise of like Barbie breaking out of Barbie land, Barbie land. I think so, yeah. Okay, sorry. I'll get it right. I think I've got Maybe it right. Maybe it's Barbie world. Because, well, they call it Ken land, I think. When Ken... I know, I think it's Barbie land, but the reason I'm thinking Barbie world is because of the Aqua song, which oh, by yeah. the way, I know we got an interpolation with Nicki Minaj and Ice Spice, but like, I really was craving... Even just the like the theme, like the the yeah. musical motif of the song, which is like so famous, I was really craving that. Like, what happened there? I think Aqua deserved their due in this. Did some negotiations break down? Like, that's the most confusing part of the movie. But there was something about it where, like, because this plot was very much about like her escaping the world, it had sequel like to me sort yeah, of built yeah, into it. Sure. Whereas I think another thing I was craving in this film, because my favorite part of the film was the first 30 minutes for sure. sure. Learning about Barbie land, how it functioned, meeting all of our Barbies, meeting all of our Kens. I would have loved to see like more world building in the land, uh, in the land of Barbie, famously Barbie land, um, before everything sort of went amok because I just was really enjoying Barbie land when things were status quo. And there was so much I was hoping to learn about like how things function in Barbie land. And I felt like we went askew very early on, which obviously propelled the narrative of the film. But again, I think that there was something in me that was like, this would have been a really fun plot for two, having established the world in one. Yes, I could very much see that. Also, I do think the choice to have them, to have the real world be Los Angeles, 
I was craving New York City. I was thinking like they should just send them like somewhere in the Midwest or something. Interesting. That would be really fun. Yeah. Well, there was that feeling when they're like, because there's the scene of them on Venice Beach when they first emerge into the real world. And everyone's like pointing and staring and like ogling her. And like, they weren't dressed very crazy for Venice Beach. They looked very much like the vibe of Venice Beach. I was surprised that... That again, that choice, because what you're speaking to is like, if you drop that Barbie and Ken in the Midwest, like that's a sight. Or even again, them rollerblading through Times Square. I think, (laughs) although in that instance, people might think, honestly, people would probably just assume that they were doing promo for the the Barbie movie. But hey, this movie liked, you know, addressing the meta nature of it all. Um, But I am curious to sort of see where we land with the sequel, because part of me was thinking, I guess we have Barbie's now in the real world, has a vagina, so is able to procreate, has a baby, and her daughter is curious to learn where she comes from. Oh, we're going to get like Kelly. Is Kelly the daughter of Barbie? Oh, I don't know. You know, you get Barbie and Kelly. Okay, so then Kelly, Kelly travels back to Barbie land and then... Well, this is the thing. It's just like, I don't know that I want a sequel to this movie. And like, it, it, are we going to get Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach working on Barbie too? I mean, like, I know that I know it's like very tempting to make a lot of money. And, well, there's but... the possibility that like this becomes a franchise in which it's passed to like other more indie-esque directors. Like I would love like Greg Araki to come around and like take the, take the wheels with the wheels, take the, no, the steering wheel. Oh, the, well, take, that's a wheel. Take the wheel. Take yeah. The wheel. To take the wheel on Barbie too. Like there, I would love to see, you know, we have this template for how it looks. I would love to see that given to others, you know, that sort of come that came up in that similar scene as Greta Gerwig. Also, I think we just got a shout out, like the production design of uh-huh. this film was superb. And I think incredible. One of the most appealing aspects of this film was that it did not use CGI. It used so many practicals. There are so many great behind the scenes videos right now, where you could sort of see how the sauce was made. And it's just a joy to see movie making in this way uh, and how, you know, you get this great montage of Ryan and Margot traveling from Barbie land to the real world. And there's these great behind the scenes videos in which that entire sequence was shot practically. And it's just really cool to see. Yeah. I say this completely not facetiously, but I haven't seen a movie look that good using real sets since the Flintstones, (sighs) which you want to talk about set design. Yeah. Do you want to talk about hair design? <laughs> so good. The Flintstones is falls in that similar category of the Brady Bunch movie to me. Yeah. Where it just has like that perfect, perfect tone, but it at the underlying is love, right? It's a love for the thing. And I and I definitely felt that in this Barbie movie, it's very clear how much Greta Gerwig loves Barbies. Um, so two last things. One, do you feel like the use of this ginormous cast was necessary? Because I felt that. I had so many faves who I was so excited to see pop up in this film that were blink and you miss it. I mean, Nicola Coughlin, for instance, who I love, um, I think she was maybe in the film for five seconds. Um, You get these like cameos from Dua Lipa, you get John Cena, you've all these Barbies and all these Kens. I'm wondering if you felt that it was necessary to have them all be such prominent actors and not just extras. Yeah, look, I've never loved an ensemble cast. I I can't think of one example where it works for me. 
Uh, I find it distracting. I find it takes me out of the movie. Even Ryan Gosling, although I was like praising his performance, a lot of the times I was thinking, oh, that's Ryan Gosling doing this funny thing. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, Ryan Gosling singing. And so that really does take me out when you have so, so many of them. It's like, look, I like Kate McKinnon, but did I need her to be Weird Barbie? I didn't need her to be Weird Barbie. I think a lot of people could have been Weird Barbie where I wasn't thinking about who was playing Weird Barbie. I think in the case of Kate, Will Ferrell, and Michael Sarah, although I love all three of them, all three of them were playing the parts that we've seen yeah. them all play before. And I think it would have been way more interesting casting, particularly with those three characters, to go in the Goslingian direction of casting someone who is seemingly against type. Obviously, like seeing Will Ferrell uh, back on the screen where he belongs is like a joy. I gotta say, like, I've been I've been down on Will Ferrell for most of my life. And, like, I'm just like, okay, like, I get it. The comedy is, like, so obvious. And it's just, like, it just hasn't been for me. He, he had my biggest laugh lines of the movie. Yeah, he's really good. <laughs> Last thing I want to touch down on is America Ferrer's monologue uh, that sure. happens at the end of the film. So during the film's climax, Ferrer's character Gloria delivers a monologue breaking down the countless ways women are required to perform gender and identity as a means to help Barbie understand that the game has always been rigged against women. The ways that women have to be strong, but not too strong, so as not to intimidate men. The ways they have to love their children, but not make them their whole identity, and certainly never complain. The ways they have to smile and nod and apologize when they've done nothing wrong, so as not to upset the status quo. And above all else, they're supposed to be grateful for the table scraps they're tossed and accept them with a smile. It's a moment that had my audience cheering. People were so here for this monologue. I'm wondering what your response was to that monologue, which really, I think, laid out the thesis of Gerwig's film. Look, I thought it was a good monologue. I thought it was well-delivered. America Ferrera, by the way, also great performance in this movie. Fantastic. It seemed a little obvious to me, uh, the, the content of the monologue. It's like nothing that we haven't heard. Granted, Barbie hasn't heard it. And so in the confines of the film... I understand why Barbie needs to hear this or the other Barbies need to hear this. But it just felt like stuff that I've been hearing since the mid 90s. Uh, There wasn't anything like particularly revelatory about it to me. Uh, And then the fact that it had to continue to be repeated. I felt like there was a couple instances like this, um, like the... Uh, uh, the creator of Barbie's tax evasion. Like there was a couple times where it was like, oh, we're going to do the joke three times. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of content and really uh, a lot of exposition to tell us exactly what is going on, um, where I feel like I wish that kind of a thing was left up to the audience to sort of like interpret or understand. I do think in the context of the film, that was a revelation to the Barbies within Barbie land. Yeah. My question was, so then, you know, Margot's character, Barbie, makes this decision to live in the real world, but, like, the real world is where the patriarchy exists and, like, is able to prosper. So I felt like there was something kind of, like, melancholic about where we landed because, yes, she escaped the confines of Barbie world, but actually, by the end of the film, Barbie world had 
flipped back into being a utopia for women, an all-female Supreme Court, for instance, and Margot had made the decision to enter the real world where we have this incredibly right-wing Supreme Court who, you know, wants to take away women's rights at, at all turns. That was the part I wasn't quite sure of, like, what, what the commentary was there, because everything that America was speaking to in that monologue, uh, not everything, but much of it persists in the world that we live in today. So I actually found it, in addition to being, like, rather obvious, I felt like it was quite sad where the film landed. I thought there would have been something fun about, you know, America Ferrera's character convincing Barbie and herself and her daughter to stay and live in Barbie land because Barbie land is a better place. Yes, that's what I wanted. I really thought like, oh, this is like the story here is that the real world is never going to be as good as Barbie land. That's one sort of like a more interesting thing for us as an audience to chew on than Barbie going to live in the real world. Yes. And it's also just would be like more interesting as a marketing tactic for Mattel to be like, you think Barbie's problematic? Well, look at these people from the real world. They'd way rather live with Barbie. I I thought about like Amy Coney Barrett, for instance, and the horrible women that have helped, you know, this country become what it is that the idea that like, Men are one way and women are one way is, I think, a little too simplistic. And granted, I realize we're talking about Barbie here, but if we're going to bring in a monologue like this and we are talking about the Supreme Court is a part of this movie, it's like there are women, well, no, sorry, there is a woman on the U.S. Supreme Court who actively fights against her own gender. And I do think that that is like a part of the conversation. Granted, I don't know if it fits into this movie, but again, it's sort of like the... But this movie, like, wanted to broach conversations like that, but, like, didn't, but perhaps couldn't. Like, I, you know, you can't satisfy everyone. But there was something in that monologue where I did feel like it was biting off a bit more than it could chew in the sense that it didn't land us in quite the right place. My other thought was just, like, why not kick all of the Kens out? Because I worry that those Kens are going to plan another uprising. It was so easy for them to take over. I don't want to risk that happening again. I was like, push all the Kens out into the real world. Also, the fact that Will Ferrell and those band of CEOs were able to get into Barbie world so easily, that is worrisome to me as well. (laughs) There were just lots of things where I just was like, I want better for these Barbies. Yeah, it would have been great if they kicked the Kens out. Especially if they realized, like, you know, she goes to the real world, she realizes, oh, there's like, uh, oh, uh, men and women are together so that they can have children or something like this, right? Like, and we we can't do that. You know, there's that great moment where, uh, you know, Ken asked to stay the night, and she says, "Well, to do what?" And he's like, "I don't, I don't know." And if you haven't seen the movie, you can you can check that moment out in the trailer. Yeah, for sure, and probably <laughs> multiple trailers. And uh, <laughs> it would just be nice for them to be realized, like, actually, yeah, the men literally aren't doing anything around here. So go start your own Ken Land. There's yeah, there's plenty of spaces that are already living in some some form of Kenland. I do want to end by just saying, and you got to this already, but it's like, shout out to Margot Robbie. I think that within the discourse, Gosling is eating up a lot of people's attention. I'm even seeing talk of him potentially getting you know, in contention for awards for this role. I don't even know how those conversations... I think all you have to do is say it. Who do you, well, we can say it now. We can, we can nominate Margot right now. Let's do it. Margot... 
Robbie is in contention for Best Actress at the upcoming Academy Awards for this role. But no, I was reminded of Sarah Jessica Parker on Sex and the City as far as being the most grounded character in a film and therefore people often go towards the Samanthas or the Mirandas to sort of give them their boost. But like this film existed on the shoulders of Margot Robbie and this performance. And I just feel like as the film went on, she was able to layer in so much complexity to a character that obviously had some dimension because of course, you know, Barbie's going through it. But I think uh, Margot was able to offer this humanity to her that was sort of like the way she was able to dribble that in slowly, um, but also make the Barbie that you meet at the top of the film feel real, but also a doll. And like, I get it. Like that's, that's the role. (laughs) She is a presence similar to Jennifer Lawrence where just, I like watching her on screen. I feel very taken care of when she is in the frame. I feel at ease. I, I, I like watching her. She embodies what I think it means to be a movie star. And, you know, people talk, we've talked about, you know, movie stars are not as dime a dozen as they once were. They, you know, perhaps they're even going out entirely, maybe going extinct. And she is a reminder that they do exist. And and I think a film like this is better for having someone who's not only as capable of an actress as Margot, but as much of a screen presence. And I really hope, I'm going to put this out there, that Greta Gerwig has made a ton of money from this film. And I really need her to do an original film next. We've gotten The Little Women adaptation we've gotten the barbie adaptation she's i just think such an incredible talent to be i don't want to say wasted on adaptations but like we we've seen what she's capable of doing with ladyburg we've seen her as an actress in many things but francis ha most notably which is one of my all-time favorite movies and so i just i'm dying to see what what Greta Gerwig has to say that is not tied to an IP. Even if this film had gotten, you know, critically lambasted, which it didn't, but even if it had, the fact that she is able to put together a film, this original in, you know, obviously it's an IP, but there was no, you know, set direction for what this film was going to look like, what the vibe was going to be. This was all of her mind. The fact that it's this big of a hit, I mean... I think the original projections were somewhere in like the 70s, 80s for opening weekend and were over double that. And this is just opening weekend. And I, I think this is going to continue on. It, it means that the possibilities for her are going to be endless. But really, the question is, like, what does Greta want to do next, right? Like, so as the world opens up to her by way of possibility, like, you know, if she wanted to direct a Marvel film next, I'm sure she could. And part of me is like, I'd kind of like to see. I don't want her to. I Like, I really think of, like, there's a real parallel here between, I'm really going off mm-hmm. track here, but Denis Villeneuve, who did Dune and Blade Runner, like, his his early works, his early films are so incredible and they're original and they're either written by him or directed by him or both. And I just am dying for him now that he's made, but now he's got to do all these dunes, but like now that he's made this Blade Runner money and dune money, like I just want you to go back and like make something that like feels like it's coming from the heart. I mean, that's the challenge with great success sometimes is you want people to 
continue to do the thing that you once loved them for, even though their parameters, yeah. No, but actually, with what you're saying, I take back what I even put out there just now. I'm not fucking seeing uh, any Marvel movie. <laughs> if Sarah Michelle, I mean, the only, I was going to say, if Sarah Michelle Gellar is in a Marvel movie, I'm seeing a Marvel movie. If Jen Coolidge is in a Marvel movie, I'm seeing a Marvel movie. That's pretty much the only thing that's going to get my butt in that seat. Um, but anywho, that's Barbie. I think it is a tremendously fun film. I'm excited that people are so amped about it and I'm curious to see like what the reaction is going to be when the dust settles a little bit more. I don't even fully know what my opinion is yet because I feel like it's I'm so um there are so many other opinions like circulating in my mind of things that I've read, things that I've heard, you know, uh, again, even thinking about like Ben Shapiro like did this like rant about it and then like that went viral yeah. and then people like dunking on him and like that's its own thing and then like people think like thinking that this conservative backlash is actually legitimate there's just so much um and that's barbie so anywho i look forward to hearing people's thoughts on barbie anything you want to add uh i just want to tell people that by the time this comes out you'll want to go check out drop your buffs where we have interviewed Mike White and Angelina Keeley, both of Survivor 37, David versus Goliath. Mike White, of course, creator, writer, director of The White Lotus. And that was a really, really fun conversation, a bucket list interview. So that's out now. Go check that out. Absolutely. And it's actually another great transition to today's guest because our guest on today's show is Zoe Lister-Jones. And you will hear a discussion in the interview you're about to listen to in which we talk about our, me and Zoe's, shared love of Survivor, a show that Sean and I have a dedicated podcast about. Uh, as we just mentioned, drop your buffs, check out our interview with Mike White and Angelina Keeley. And if you like that, there's a whole lot more for you. And if you want our recaps of And Just Like That, they are also on the Drop Your Buffs feed. However, I'm not so proud of myself in this last episode, Sean. I got to tell you, I rewatched the episode as soon as we finished recording. And then I was like, everything I said, I feel the exact opposite. Um, yeah, I got to say, I will offline about this, but like, I cannot, I need to watch the episode twice before we record from now on. I record it and then I'm like in the moment and I'm feeling some type of way. And then I rewatch and I'm like, no, Evan, like you just didn't, like you didn't get it. And then I get it, you know? <laughs> Without any further ado, here is our interview with Zoe Lister-Jones, and I just want to say, as I did last week again, that this interview was taped before the SAG-AFTRA strike went into effect, and therefore Zoe is not crossing any kind of picket line and not doing anything that she is not allowed to do as a member of SAG-AFTRA. We did this in advance. All right, here she is. Shut up, Evan. Hi, I feel like this is like a long time coming. Very long time, long overdue. You have both Slip and Bo is Afraid. So there's two projects that I'm like very eager to talk about. And I find there to be a lot of parallels between these two projects. Okay, well, you've piqued my interest. I, I would like to know the Slip Bo is Afraid crossover in your Venn diagram. We'll get to it. I sort of mapped it out a little bit. <laughs> to start with, I was just watching an interview that you did on the talk and you mentioned that you think <laughs> that you could win Survivor. And I don't know if you know, Zoe, but I have a Survivor podcast in addition to this podcast. So I am a Survivor super fan. I do know. I'm curious to know, though, what qualities you possess that would have you winning the game of Survivor. And, I, and I'm not saying this in any way, whereas I think y you don't. Well, no, actually, <laughs> I said on the talk, I'm a late adapter to Survivor. So um, I waited a, a casual 44 seasons, which <laughs> I think was 22 years. Um, 
right? There's two seasons a year. Mm -hmm. But in watching this season, which is just a joy, <laughs> um, I look at someone like Carolyn, um, who I have tagged in my Instagram and I'm waiting for a follow back. Um, I look at someone like Carolyn and I think like, and this is no knock on Carolyn, but if she can do it, you know, I feel that I can. <laughs> yeah. Because Carolyn has a difficult time with some of the physical challenges. She gets caught, caught in nets, caught throwing foam. She she just, you're always hearing, you know, Master Probst just being like, Carolyn's still caught. Carolyn not getting through it. Like the dark horse, because I think Carolyn could win it. Mm -hmm. Like the dark horse is always my favorite character in any narrative. And I think I would be a dark horse only because here are my qualities. Raised in Brooklyn in the 80s. Have uh, razor sharp survival instincts. Major fight or flight, which is not helpful in most situations except for Survivor. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I am physically tired so many <laughs> steddles that that our people had to escape from we've been running for so long uh-huh and yet if i'm like told to like race like a sprint i'm fast listen you've painted a picture in which i i'm seeing it i too was not a survivor person the pandemic brought it out of me i mainlined 40 seasons the 40 seasons that were available at the time and I feel like it's funny. It's like I used to be like really into housewives. That was like a big part of my mm. identity. Yeah. And I kind of dropped that entirely for Survivor. And I was like, this is really where it's at. And now have you returned to housewives? I'm watching it, but in a very sure. different way than I once was. I'm a much more passive viewer of housewives than I was in my prime when I was like, memeing it out and it was a big part of like the conversation in my group texts and I don't really have much to say about housewives these days I sort of it goes in one ear out the other are you a housewives person as opposed to survivor I was an early adapter you know like mm -hmm. New York season one yeah, two yeah. three Bethany spinoffs still very much in it then then <laughs> fell off and then this year I've gotten pretty deeply involved uh in Miami and Vanderpump I feel like when you have like those kinds of relationship, it's like like seeing an ex, you know, it's like I understand what drew us to one another at a different stage. And I can still see you and appreciate you, but I'm not like trying to have you ram me. Have you ram me? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. So that is a perfect segue for us to get into <laughs> Slip. With Slip, I felt like I immediately was comfortable and understood the world. And the laughs came very quickly for me. And I was I was invested in May's journey. So I got to just say, I, I, I highly recommend the show. So for people that don't oh, know, thank you, Evan. of course, you wrote, directed, and star in this piece. And it centers around your character, Mae Cannon, an associate museum curator, bored with the life she leads, who travels through parallel universes, trying to find her way back to her partner and herself. Now, before I ask you about the show, this is the Bo is Afraid connection to me. In that, after watching Slip and then after seeing Bo is Afraid, people will be like, well, what are these shows about? I'm sure you have been tasked with that question quite a bit. Ugh. But the plot is really not the focal point to me. Ugh. It's really the vibe, the experience of watching the show. I'm wondering how you have maneuvered talking about both of these projects. I think with Slip, I talk about the 
multiverse element because I think that's like a digestible way in for people and obviously a big part of the zeitgeist right now. But I definitely also am like, and the portal to the multiverse is orgasm. I want to be really clear that sex and sexuality are the propulsive force of the narrative um, because that is what what I wanted to write. And, and May's journey is so much a journey of sexual awakening and embodiment. It is essentially like kind of asking the question of like what we do with our eternal dissatisfaction and like yes, yes. how we wrestle with constantly wanting more from the lives that we have. And if that's just a human desire or if it's a desire that we should be questioning or repressing or avoiding, I sort of put May on this journey to try to answer that question for myself which I still don't have the answer to. <laughs> Season two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I think Bo is, it's a similar like process of individuation. Like in Slip, May is individuating from her partner. I went through my own separation from my long-term partner um, in the pandemic. And I think it is, you know, in some ways uh, an exploration of that and what that means to sort of come into your own and what, home looks like like because so often we like to return to old ideas of like internal safety and the scary part is to be reinventing what internal safety actually looks and feels like as we're growing in this world for Bo he is a deeply unsafe person internally like he is the most anxious person alive and in such a toxic relationship with his mother and it's basically a three-hour nightmare comedy uh, in which he's trying to get home to his mother um, and is faced with like 1,000 misadventures. To say the least. You know what's funny? I feel <laughs> like I might be the one viewer of Bo is Afraid that was unfamiliar with Ari's work previously. I have now retroactively corrected that. Wow. But everything I read or digest about Bo is Afraid is all about seeing it through the prism of Ari's previous work and, you know, understanding this to be his latest project put up against these other two. And I didn't have that context. Interesting. But wait, there, there's another parallel, I think, between these two projects, right? So in Slip, May is transported through the multiverse via orgasm, as you said. And in Bo, your character, Mona, Bo's mother, tells Bo that he has a congenital heart defect that also took the lives of his father and grandfather at the moment they had an orgasm. Then, so at the root of these projects is this idea of orgasm. What is it for you an orgasm? <laughs> oh, where do we begin? <laughs> How long is our orgasm? It's a double podcast. Uh, <laughs> you know, not to like lean too much into a binary, but I do think that as a woman for most of my life, I've had a complicated relationship to sexual intimacy. And I think a lot of my friends have expressed sort of similar roadblocks when it comes to sexual pleasure. And I think just embodiment. I struggled to listen. Hashtag struggled to come for a long time with other people. It was a journey for me to understand what that was, what that was rooted in, what traumas in my past that was rooted in, and then how to move forward. I had a sexual awakening late. In, in life, like in my in my late 30s, which like actually in talking to a lot of women, that does seem like an age where that does happen um, and we don't really talk about it. I wanted to um, 
look at a woman at that age as a protagonist and to unapologetically be like lust driven um, because historically, obviously, those things are um, unseemly for women to embody. And some of the more damaging tropes of media representation in the past could be subverted um, because I had so much control and because I was using my own body, you know, uh, as the subject. What does it look like to make a show that is intended to turn people on, but also intended to be like funny and stupid and crawling around in the luck of the despair of life. <laughs> what do all of those things look like in conversation so that the sexual act is not just a sort of voyeuristic fantasy and instead really like woven into the fabric of, of the character's arc? There's been a lot of discourse about sex in cinema recently. There's this whole Gen Z sort of distaste for sex scene. Yeah. And it sort of sparked a conversation about Hollywood censorship. You know, you've had some actors come forward and say, I am partnered in real life, so I don't want to be performing sex scenes because that feels incongruous to my relationship. You have other actors coming forward feeling quite the opposite. <laughs> and my overall takeaway from it is just surprise because we should get more uninhibited as the generations move on. And I'm learning quickly that that's not the case. Um, from your end, as no, no, no. the creator of the project and someone who, as you say, orgasm was a central topic of conversation both in your life and then now in your work, where do you come down on this conversation? Come down, LOL. <laughs> um, I was like, if that's a conversation between you and your wife, keep it between you and your wife. But I don't think it needs to be like um, a proclamation that then all actors, by the way, any every actor was like, you just ruined my fucking marriage. Like, you know, because then <laughs> the expectation is like, well, I'm badly said. Right. I have been in various forms of non-monogamous relationships in my life that I think tap into the same very human insecurities that arise for people who are then on a set, you know, a, a, the partner of someone who's on a set and doing sex scenes. The fact is the sex scenes themselves are the least sexy thing you could ever be a part of. <laughs> like there's like a disgusting like socks and tape over the you know, like the nether bits and like, there's so much choreography. If you're lucky, I do believe in intimacy coordinators. I know that people feeling safe in a very vulnerable environment, it's important. And what was cool about my intimacy coordinator was like, she was like, I am as involved or not involved as you tell me to be. Like, it's not like there's like a police force on set being like, no nipple. Like, I was like, here's what I want. I want this character to kiss my neck and I would have to explain everything, put his mouth on my nipple, lick it, then go down to my belly button, lick that, then unbutton my pants, then pull my pants down and then go down to me, right? Like these are the conversations that I'm having with the intimacy coordinator. I say the exact shots, which I have all shot listed. And then the intimacy coordinator goes to that actor and their team and they say, here are the body parts that are going to be shown. Here's the exact choreography. And then that actor comes in being like, I've prepared for this. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> and 
And then there is actually, I think, more room. Just like coming into a scene and knowing all your lines gives you the opportunity to improvise a little bit because you have the framework in your bones. Like if you have the framework of the choreography of a sex scene really mapped out, then people are going to feel more comfortable to be like, I don't know, to, to lean into it and to not feel as afraid. I've never been on the other side of having a partner in a sex scene I think putting the kibosh on it is taking away from art. Like, it's, sex, when done well, is such a beautiful part of art, especially in this country. Like, we have such a puritanical view of it that has actually created so much sexual objectification and sexual violence towards women because of the, the taboo. Like, if we were actually able to just go, like, that's fucking and this is what it is. <laughs> I think I did want to destigmatize it by sort of putting it really front and center and going like, you're not going to, you're going to stay in this sex scene a little longer than you might usually. Um, and you're going to stay on my face as I come longer than you would usually. This is not the porn version of sex that is just slightly shifted for movie versions of sex, you know? And I think it was very effective in that. I want to ask you a difficult question now, and if you want this to not be included or not even answer it, absolutely. It's something that this conversation made me think of. In December 2021, you came forward and accused actor Chris Noth of sexually harassing you on the set of Law & Order Criminal Intent in 2005. The reason I'm bringing this up, it's something that when I was doing some research on you, it pops up in your Wikipedia bio. And I'm wondering how you feel about that because when people come forward they don't necessarily want it to be something that they speak of beyond the moment that they chose to speak about it so you could say even me asking you about it now could be perceived as a violation that's why I, I want to make sure that you're comfortable in even having the conversation like I said but it's something that I was like that's such a bummer that that's on her Wikipedia bio yeah that is a bummer I didn't know that I learned a lot from that experience it's even strange for me to hear you say like you accused Chris Noth of sexual harassment or of sexually harassing me because like I I didn't use those words and and, and just like that had come out <laughs> and um and I watched the first episode and I watched Big Die I tried to process it and I was talking to my friend about like oh yeah good riddance or something and they're like whoa <laughs> you know and I said well he's a predator he's a known predator my friend was like that's a crazy word to throw around like and I was like yeah you're right that is crazy I didn't even know where it came from and then like cut to I don't remember maybe a week later these three women unnamed came out in the Hollywood Reporter saying that he had raped them in different accounts and when those women came out a number of my friends wrote to me and said remember when you told I wasn't even putting any of it together. And that's like the nature of when you see these things of like, why didn't you talk about it earlier? It's like, I wanted to write the post to be like, this is the human experience of these microaggressions, right? Like I wouldn't even call that sexual harassment because we are so trained to be like, that's just working with an actor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he smelled me and told me I smelled good and he was drunk on set. Like, and then I worked at his club and he was inappropriate with a, um, a fellow promoter. I was a promoter at his club as women so often we're just like these are the things we have to put up with and bury and move on because a there is no recourse b that person has so much more power than me in this world and c we think it's our responsibility <laughs> to just 
move forward because as you can see, if you don't, it becomes a part of your entire identity without understanding the impact that that Instagram post would have. And so I just wrote like sort of in, in defense of these unnamed women, like I'd like to, to also add a name because I think when women are unnamed, it's very hard for there to be really serious allegations um, that can go anywhere. And so I named myself because I was like, I have been through nothing that these women have gone through. But I did experience predatory behavior in professional environments that is just me saying, I believe them. The Me Too movement, I think, has now become a punchline in so many ways. But I think the beauty of the Me Too movement was that it did allow for so many women to, to look at every shade on the spectrum of predation um, and and say, oh, I've been at different levels of this, but I'm allowed to to say me too. I'm allowed to not just go, well, that's just life. I was being deemed as like law and order actress accuses Chris Noth, which I was like, I do have maybe a couple more <laughs> things on my resume. Just a few. And then a lot of women and men actually who had worked for Chris were just all over my DMs. And then I was sort of like the hotline for people who didn't know who to tell these stories to. Which is its own trauma dump that's happening on you when you're sharing something that's your own trauma. You can understand why they're doing it, but it's also, I imagine that's its own burden to take on that you were not intending necessarily in sharing your truth. It was just me being like, this is fucked. These poor women, and they're so afraid to be named for good reason like yes. their fear is exactly this it's because when i named myself in such a smaller capacity the ire that came at me was so overwhelming in addition to you know support or whatever and then the gaslighting of you just did this to get attention which is the classic one-two pot of shoes to what you were saying about wanting to put a face and a name to all of this, what you were putting down was exactly what I was picking up. So uh, I just want okay, cool. you to know that. <laughs> also, though, it's interesting. Like I interviewed an actor on the show Beef uh, recently, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was telling my friends, oh, my God, I'm interviewing this actor. I'm so excited. And they were like, are you going to ask him about David Cho and the accusations? Yeah. And I said, well, no, it doesn't feel relevant to my conversation then i started to think am i wrong to not ask am i missing the potential headline totally. in the end i didn't ask the actor about it because this actor is not an executive producer on the show right and so i didn't think it was something that they needed to speak to uh -huh. there is that tendency for people to think put a microphone in the face of anyone nearby anyone with any proximity to the project and say well what do you think to what you were saying earlier about sort of like delegitimizing the Me Too movement by making it sort of headline generating topics uh, as opposed to, as you and I are having right now, sort of substantive conversations about the tendencies of this industry and the ripple effect that that has beyond Hollywood. Yeah, and what we do with those kinds of transgressions that have culturally and sociopolitically been sort of imprinted as just the way it goes yeah i f i felt like the death of mr big was like this is the crossroads where we can mm. dispel that archetype and start looking for a new one or or building a new one or modeling a new one where yeah where it's not the withholding completely inconsistent <laughs> um emotionally unavailable 
brute yeah. that Mr. Big sort of represented. You know, out with Big and with Che. <laughs> <laughs> out with Big and with Che. Switching gears back to Slip, this show is executive produced by Dakota Johnson. This is a Dakota Johnson super fan stan podcast. Dakota is like one of those enigmas for so many of us. And I'm just curious, having worked with her on this project and in this capacity too, what was that collaboration like? She is a dream goddess human. She's not of this earth. She's fallen from heaven. And also incredibly intelligent, kind, generous devoted it's so crazy to work with people that you admire to that degree and to feel their support and love of something that you know was just percolating in in my little jewish body for so long and now (laughs) and now it's not only in the world but being shepherded by someone with such an incredible platform and and who has like this amazing production company tea time who she runs with ro donnelly and They're just making such cool shit. Now, this show is on Roku, and I feel like it faces a similar challenge with Jury Duty on Freebie. Correct. In having to establish both itself and its network. And I'm wondering if you felt that dual pressure. You know I did, Evan. (laughs) I thought you might. Yeah, I'm not just promoting a show. I'm launching Roku. (laughs) (laughs) You are. Congrats, by the way. Thank you. There is a barrier to entry because while 70 million people do have Roku televisions in their home, many people I talk to are like, oh, I just need to slip. They're like, what's it on? I'm like, Roku. And then it's just like crickets. And then I have to go, okay, well, do you have a Samsung TV? Because you can download it, the app on the Samsung or an Amazon Fire Stick. Or you can just watch it for free at therokuchannel.com on your laptop or tablet. (laughs) I'm so grateful for people like you because I do think that you are um, one of the great gatekeepers of the culture. (laughs) And in a good way, that like like, I wouldn't have known about jury duty had I not saw you post all of your amazing memes, which, by the way, dream of my life that you post a slip meme oh i'm ready i'm ready right now i only have a watermarked version so it's funny i was taking notes uh throughout actually it's funny you say that because you have a line in the first episode where you say i can't deal with the holocaust right now it's not a holocaust kind of night and i was like immediately i saw the meme in my head i mean there are so many memeable moments you also make a reference to uh fergie pissing on stage in the second episode um another instance when like the light bulb went off in my head. So yes, it's fully, fully possible and fully will become a reality. Great. We're going to get you non-watermarked. Also, I feel like nobody ever hears that Fergie line and I'm so, oh. so happy that you heard it. Oh, it, it dings <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, what I was going to say is like, I wouldn't, wouldn't have known about jury duty if not for your memes. Then I had to go, okay, how do I watch it? And then I watched it and I was like, it's totally easy to find. Oh, totally. And it's just getting over the hump. And the beauty of like Buzz and people like you who can shine a spotlight on things that you love, that you think people, you know, who love you would love, is that then you can be on a lesser known streamer and break through some of the noise. Absolutely. Because as you said, it's like, yes, there's that barrier. But the great thing about once you're through the barrier, especially when you have quality content, like a slip, like a jury duty, it's like you've done the harder part, which is making the good content. Because how many of like the big streamers out there are putting out, in addition to quality content, less good content within it all because of the content machine that we live in. So now it's sort of like training the audiences 
to be nimble. These things are super simple once you do step one. Yeah. One of the great things, again, because Slip is really good content, once you're in the door, like, you'll be happier inside. <laughs> and, and you can watch all of them and they're bingeable. Like something like Jury Duty, I haven't seen something that good in so long. Like that, that that's that consistently funny. My assumption is that working at a place like Freebie, who is in their sort of nascent stage, allowed those creators to have a lot more room. And working with Roku, like I wrote all seven episodes of Slip in quarantine and then gave all seven episodes to Roku. And they gave me a green light to series without one script note. And that is like the beauty of why some of this content that is a little bit harder to find might be of a higher quality because there's so much more trust being given to artists and there's so many more risks being taken rather than in these big machines where there are way more sort of fingers in the pot, so to speak. And an important point for audiences to understand because we have a lot of say as the audiences in what things get greenlit. We can propel these things, interest in things. And I think it's important for us to sort of understand something like this, for instance, where it's like the amount of this is a big swing that was taken. And same with jury duty. And I, as a whatever it is I do, I'm a big fan of celebrating big swings. I want to ask you something on that topic. So Natasha Leone was interviewed by Variety recently, and she said something, and I think it's applicable to you. She said, quote, there is a huge, huge disconnect. disconnect between the amount of opportunities that the men in that field get and the respect that they get in that field of, wow, they've created their own show. Surely they did that work. And surely we should reward them with a slew of opportunities and a pile of money. And that, you know, when you see some of the coolest women that we all love. There's just not the same reciprocal business. I loved hearing her talk about this because I think it's another facet that although seemingly inside baseball, it actually is really important for people like me and those listening to understand this because yeah. I have a friend who is a very successful actress who's been in a part of the number of very successful projects. And I was so shocked to learn that despite her seeming success, she was not being compensated in quite the same way that one might expect. So I'm wondering how you respond to that Natasha quote. I mean, yes, there are, <laughs> there are, there are disparities yes. abounding. <laughs> my response is yes, period. I, I made a film called Band-Aid. That was my directorial debut. Um, that I also wrote and um, and starred in. And I made it with a crew that was um, comprised entirely of women because of how much of the disparity I was witnessing um, on sets. Even since, like, I made Band-Aid in 2017. And I think since then, just the opportunities for women behind the camera have grown exponentially. You know, you mentioned having this all-female crew on Band-Aid, and it's one thing to sort of like, you know, draft that idea up. It's a whole other thing to walk on the set and to see it. So can you describe that feeling when you first arrived on the set and looked out and there's this utopia devoid of men? <laughs> but it was really interesting because a lot of my female department heads were apprehensive about hiring women because even that they who had you know, through grit and, and gristle, climbed their way to the top in such a male-dominated industry, were like, yeah, but Brian, I've been working with him for 12 years. Like, he's the best in the business. Everyone is 
doing it from a, a place of wanting to make the best work, you need to take the risk. And then most of those people are going to be so hungry, you know, and so excited to be at the table that they're going to work probably 10 times harder than Brian, who you've known for 12 years. Once I got to set, I, I don't think I could have ever anticipated the magic. It was so amazing. I saw Jerry O'Connell yesterday on the talk. He, he was on set and his scene got cut out, sadly, but he was on set and he talked about it yesterday. Like, I haven't seen him in like maybe a decade. And he was like, do you remember what walking on that set felt like? Like, it was the first thing he said to me. And I think, especially for a lot of the men actors being the only men on set, it was like uh, really beautiful and nourishing and not only possible, but that we were thriving. And it was a real testament to the impact of mentorship in terms of affecting change when it comes to inequity. It fosters a, a whole system in which they then go to their next project using the knowledge learned from a project like Band-Aid. It's a wonderful thing. But I, but I also recognize what you're saying. It's like there are people being like, go with Brian. It's old, reliable Brian. And it's easy to <laughs> yeah. say, and I don't fault someone for going with old, reliable Brian, but I applaud someone that has the tenacity to say, old Brian will... There's there's more work out there for old Brian. He'll get something. What about Lucy? Come on, Lucy. Exactly. Yeah. So another detail in Slip that resonated for me, you're Jewish, I'm Jewish, and this is a Jewish uh, Easter egg, if you will, is the Barbara Streisand mug, yes. which is actually the first indication, I believe, that May has entered into some sort of multiverse. I mean, you start to realize, I guess, the shoes, but it's like she wakes up, in what doesn't feel like a familiar apartment, only to learn it's her apartment, dot, dot, dot. No, the mug is the first marker. Okay, so that mug, I know it's, a, I mean, that's a particular choice. And also, that's the mug that's the, it's the memories one, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I'm obsessed with Barbara Streisand, obviously. Uh, it, it doesn't even need to be said, but I was on a show called Life in Pieces for um, four years with, the actor James Brolin, who is married to Barbara Streisand. And Barbara started to come around set and mommy died. <laughs> and mommy perished and mommy still hasn't totally been reborn. I get it. She graciously invited the women on the cast to come to the home, to the homes, to the homes for brunt. I naturally ordered every variation of smoked salmon from Russ and Daughters in New York City. I had it shipped. Thank you. Brought it on ice. We did a lox tasting. Wow. Evan, it was one of the most incredible days of my life. And many more things happened on that day, but she did give us each a mug that was from her Netflix documentary, right? Yeah. Like, thanks for the mem, yeah. mem apostrophe. Yeah, yeah. Reese. Now, wait, that's the, the the genesis of that is because there's not the A in Barbara, right? It's like a nod to the... Okay, yes. Okay, just making sure. I think. I mean, that's when you know you've encountered a fake fan. There's something about if you spell Barbara with the extra A, it's like... Well, first of all, you're not Jewish. Um, but it's like, <laughs> it's just, it's a criminal. It's criminal. Yeah, in her home, she actually has an underground prison and you do get arrested <laughs> if you put the A. Um, th that was like our parting gift. And I cherish this mug 
Um, I drink out of it almost every day. It's like a good luck charm. I get it. And so the mug became a totem in slip. Um, something that was a nod to, I think also the legacy that like the path that Barbara blazed for people like me to act and direct and write, like she is, um, a pioneer and fearless and, um, and so there was a part of that, but it was also just like, yeah, we must put Barbara. We must put Barbara in. Um, and so we we designed those mugs. Those mugs are not the actual ones. I really want to send Barbara the show. I here's something, Evan. I wrote a Yiddish vaudeville musical for myself and Barbara Streisand to star in. I didn't send it to her, and she did read it, <laughs> and she did call me. And when the phone call came in, again, perished, reborn, perished again, you know? And she was like, I love it, but I don't want to act. But then every time I saw her thereafter, she'd be like, who's playing my part? Every time she called it her part, I was like... Butter. <laughs> butter. Um, I gave birth, yeah. But I, I... So that's sort of... That's in a drawer somewhere. Huh. You know, I, I, among many things I love about you, you know, we're talking about Barbara. You mentioned we spoke about Penn Badgley earlier. You talked about Timothy yeah. Chalamet on Fallon. I like that you name <laughs> names. I just feel like it's more fun that way. I feel like everyone, and maybe for good reason, but people are very guarded these days. And I just appreciate the naming of names. I find it refreshing and uh, it's nice to hear. I name names of people who I admire. Yeah. I mean, I dragged Penn Badgley a little bit, but... But you know what? I get the sense that, like, Penn would be willing to dialogue about this very conversation because I get the sense that it was a quote that was given that he didn't realize was going to elicit the response it did, that, like... I think so, too. I think there's nuance in that quote that even he would be willing to sort of poke at it a bit. It made me horny for Penn Badgley. Like, oh. I was like, oh, she, like, I want to be his wife. Like. Yeah. He doesn't want to fuck anybody but her, and that's hot. She's or it's like, I want to be the one co-star that has him going home to the wife and being like, we need to amend the rules. Just this once. Um, okay, before I let you go, just one last question. It's Bo is Afraid related. And it is because you play the same character as the Patti Lapone, you know? And, you know, you mentioned it on yeah. Fallon, and I didn't. the response from the audience wasn't quite loud enough for my liking. I was like, there's not enough reverence for Patti LuPone in this audience. And that's a problem. No. But when you found out that you were going to be in this film, not only co-starring Patti LuPone, but that you would be playing a younger version but of Patti LuPone, I just want to know how that felt. It's the coolest thing of all time. <laughs> Truly the coolest thing of all time. Well, you got the phone call from Barbara Streisand. I know. Okay, so uh, <laughs> they're neck and neck. Neck but, and neck. Um, <laughs> also, because Patti is such an icon to me and... To the world at large, although maybe not that audience as <laughs> um, to being tasked with embodying the singularities of Patty Lupone was a heroine <laughs> because I wanted to obviously like pay reverence to what she does as an actor, what she does with her face and her mouth and her body, and like she's such. Um, for me, like one of my great idols as an actor, you know, like I feel I've learned so much from her 
and talk about taking big swings. Like she's, she's the pinch hitter, you know, like she, she's not afraid to swing big and it always goes right into the, I don't know, sports, where would it go? The outfield. Yeah. Yeah. Outfield. Yeah. I like, it goes right into the mall. <laughs> Barbara Streisand's mall. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then, and then getting to like hang with Patty, because then when we were shooting in Montreal, I, we like were working on our scenes together. So then she got to be like my scene partner and we were rehearsing just the two of us. And I was recording her saying my lines and then going home and sort of like becoming Patty, which is the working title of my memoir. I encourage people to go and check out Patty's arc on girls, um, which I yes. had forgotten about. She kind of plays, I guess she's playing Patty, but it's sort of like in the same sense that like James Marsden is playing James Marsden on Jerry Duty. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's such a brilliant turn and unlike anything Patty's ever done before in that it's like, she's parodying herself. She's just toes the line so perfectly because it's sincere and it's parody and it's fabulous. And it's so good. Just like you, Zoe, <laughs> this has been a pleasure. I really want to encourage people to check out slip. All seven episodes of slip are streaming now on the Roku channel. Bo is afraid. Highly recommend that. You know what? Can I just say though, just see it. Don't read about it because everyone's got, such a strong opinion about it, which I've come to learn is part of loving Ari Aster's feeling strongly. But like, I, as someone again who who knew very little and was just like, oh, Patty Lapone, Parker Posey, Zoe Lister Jones, I'm in. I found it to just be like thoroughly watchable, and you'll get a giant penis. Which I guess maybe is that a spoiler? <laughs> they don't know in what context exactly. Um, all right, so thank you so very much. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. <laughs> Shut up, Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.